0: Lord, bless you today. Hope you enjoyed worship. We are missing you here. Wish these seats were filled. But you know what? God's word is still alive and powerful. It doesn't matter if it's to a small group or a huge crowd. It's powerful and it'll affect our lives. So we're gonna to get to the word in just a minute here. I hope you watch at worship first. I hope you're doing well that you prepared your hearts to drink in the word. Let's just thank God for this time together. Father, I thank you uh, for the people of God, for those that are hungry and thirsty for the word of God. I pray, Lord, that as this goes forth it goes in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. God, let the word come alive to us by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, do a work in each of our hearts today, so at the end of this would be changed, Lord, by Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. The title of the message that I have for you today is "Effective Christianity." I've really been seeking God in this time of uh, quarantine to get the right uh, word for the for the moment and. Uh, God's Word is so powerful, so alive, and I believe this is a word for the moment here, effective Christianity. I really believe that on the other side of this, uh, there are going to be a harvest of souls available to the church, and all of us as Christians need to be living effective lives so that we can be laborers in the harvest. If you heard last week's message, uh, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. If you didn't, I encourage you to listen to that. Uh, Don't let the viewership fall down. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Stay in the Word. Stay faithful. God will Keep you strong. Uh, this, the text that we're going to cover today is Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 through 16, and I'm going to read it to you. Second Corinthians chapter 6,14 through 16. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Baal? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing. I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be Sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What a powerful text, a scripture that if we've been in church for any length of time, we've heard before, yet I really believe it is God's word for us at this moment in this situation. Now, we know about the church, and the church is not a building, amen? Amen. The church is not a business, it's not a franchise. It's it's not, you know, some kind of organization among organizations. The church is a living breathing collection of individual believers. These believers and these individuals have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we become members of the church. We don't sign a card. We don't take a test. We don't uh, have a theological exam. We accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and we become part of the church, which is the body of Christ. Amen that's basic Christian theology. But when we think about the church, the church has a job to do. And most of us know this, we didn't just get saved to kind of tread water and circle the wagons or head to the hills till Jesus comes back. The church has been commissioned by Jesus himself to do some very specific things. We have a job. Matthew 28, 18 through 19 gives us what we call the great commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am always with you to the end of the age." There's what we call the great commission. There's the church's job description. The church is not a building or a business. It's a body, a collection of believers. And we've been commissioned to do some very specific things. Look what Jesus says here. The first thing he says is go and make disciples. So, you know, as we've been in the word and we've been hearing these messages, the word to us is go. You say, but pastor, we're locked down. We're in quarantine. Where can we go? We need to go into the secret place, into the presence of God, and we need to drink in the word. Why? Because he's filling us up to pour us out. You say, well, when's the pouring out come? That's not for us to know, but we need to be filled up so when the pouring out comes, we have something to pour out. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. What's the first job of the church? To make disciples. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we make disciples and we baptize them, uh, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, coming into a relationship with Jesus, identifying with him in baptism, and then he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. So under... Understand, our mission is to make disciples, it's to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and it's to teach them the commandments of the Lord, amen? That's the church's job description. Now, when you think about that, and then you, you take churches and you take you know, religious movements and you compare them to what Jesus commissioned us to do, sometimes there's some discrepancies there that need to be adjusted. Someone say amen? The contemporary church, when you look at it, now, I'm going to say some things here, and I'm going to clarify in just a minute. But when you look at the church today, are we effectively fulfilling the Great Commission? Now, I'm going to toss that out at you, and then I want to say this to clarify. Yes, the church is God's and not man's. Amen. It's not our church. It's not, well, you know what? Let's make new programs and let's get some bright ideas and let's hire staff. And no, the church is God's. It's not man. No, it's not our place to sit in judgment over the body of Christ. In no way am I saying, well, I'm criticizing the contemporary church because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. Look, it's God's church. It's not our church. We are not to sit in judgment over the body, and that's not what this is about. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit that's in charge of of creating a church that's without spot or wrinkle. Jesus is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. Sometimes it's easy for us to see the spots and the wrinkles in the church. Sometimes it's easy for us to see the spots and the wrinkles in us. And we say, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? Listen to me, it's his job. He's got it under control. The church doesn't belong to man, it belongs to God. And no, we can't change the church or even ourselves in our own strength. I hope you're listening to my heart here. This is not a criticism or a, cr- a critique or an attack or an indictment against the church. But having said all that, I think we as individual believers uh, can look and admit that maybe we could be a little more effective as individuals in the kingdom of God. Amen? Maybe as individual believers, we could say, you know what, pastor, I've got some room for improvement. I know I want some improvements in my life so that I can be a better tool in the hands of God to bring in the harvest, amen? And that's what this message is about. That we would take a look and say, you know what, we're talking about effective Christianity. Is the church effective? Am I effective as a believer? So, how do we become more effective Christians? Uh, doing our job to fulfill the Great Commission. And here's how we do it by submitting ourselves to the will and the word of God so that the Holy Spirit can help us to do our part more efficiently. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but it's something we need to wrap our minds around. We need to submit ourselves to the will of God, to the word of God, and the Holy Spirit so he can help us to do what? Our part more efficiently. There's the key there. Every believer should be an effective and efficient member of the body of Christ. Say amen. So there's two powerful keys here in our text that I see that will unlock our effectiveness. If you're hard saying, pastor, I wanna be a part of the great commission, I wanna fulfill it, I wanna go, I wanna be part of the harvest. If you're saying I wanna be effective at what I do, I don't wanna just tread water or spin my wheels Then there's two keys here in our text that will unlock our effectiveness and the Holy Spirit wants us to consider these things today and to submit to what he's doing in our hearts so that the church can do effective ministry. Here's the first key. The first key that unlocks our effectiveness is this, not being married to the world. Wow you say, "Uh, I didn't know you could marry the world. Well, you can. And not being married to the world is the first key that will unlock our effectiveness. The word says here, listen to the text, do not be bound together with unbelievers. So let's just take that little snippet right there of this verse. And verse 14 says, do not be bound, and we're going to look at that word in a minute, together with unbelievers. The word translated bound in the New American Standard Version is rendered unequally yoked in the King James Version. Maybe you've heard it that. Do not be unequally yoked. It's kind of become a catchphrase in the church. Now, the the word that... Is rendered uh, from the Greek to those words bound or unequally yoked is the same Greek word and it's only used one time in the New Testament. So it's a unique word and there's something unique being said here. The word is heterozygio and it means to yoke up differently. Now I want you to think about this it, yoking animals together is a farming thing and most of us have probably never yoked up a team of oxen. Uh, I'm probably that's a safe assumption. But when you yoke up animals together, you wouldn't put a Clydesdale horse with a Shetland pony in the same yoke. Hello? You wouldn't put like a little burro with a giant oxen. Why? Because those two animals yoked up together are an equally yoked. That team is not going to pull straight. It's not going to dig the same depth. It doesn't have the same cadence. They don't have the same, you know, when they walk, uh, the, the poor little guy's going to have to take three steps to the, to the big one. And you got to understand, when, when the text is saying don't be unequally yoked, people in an agricultural society get that right away. It, that word heterozugio means to yoke up differently, to associate discordantly. Listen to this, to connect things that are in conflict, dissonant and disagreeable. Does being unequally yoked sound like a good idea? Absolutely not. It says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, when we hear this scripture, we always hear it applied to relationships. Sometimes in business relationships, people will say, don't get into business with someone who's not a believer, who doesn't have the same morality as you, who doesn't have the same integrity as you. Hello, right? We understand that. And so it's, it's geared towards relationships, sometimes towards business relationships. But this scripture that we're looking at here, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is most frequently applied to dating and marital relationships. We say this to our young people. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't get together with someone who's not a believer. Now, it's pretty easy for us to see the difficulties that can come from being married to an unbelieving spouse. And there's challenges that would be created there. So we all kind of get that. Oh, you know, we want to be on the same page about Jesus and our faith. So when we raise our kids, you know, that's, that's easy to see. What's not easy to see is the dangers that come from being married to the world because it's sneaky and it's subtle how we get married to the world without us really even knowing it and we think, well, we're just going about our daily business. We're just going about life and really we bought into the world system and we're not operating in the kingdom of God anymore but we're operating in the carnal, in the flesh and we get married to the world and all of a sudden our effectiveness as Christians evaporates and we begin to tread the water, and we begin to not bear fruit, and we begin to just get dried out and worn out. And so the first key to being effective Christians is to not be married to the world. Listen, if we want to be effective, we have to, instead of marry the world, disentangle ourselves from the world, listen to that, by the Holy Spirit, I'm picking these words very carefully. I want you to see that you and I need to be disentangled from the world, its systems, its goals, and its affections. The world, I want you to think of the world as a thorn bush. If you've ever been stuck in a thorn bush, if you've ever walked into a thorn bush, you know it's like those things wrap around you and dig into you, and they don't wanna let you go. There's been times where I've left a lot of skin in thorn bushes, getting disentangled. And that's the image I want you to see here, how the world just kind of grabs hold of us and we get entangled in it. And if we want to be effective for the kingdom, we have got to be disentangled from the world. Listen to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16 says for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but it is from the world. Listen to verse 17. This world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What a powerful scripture. Don't get tangled into the world, get disentangled from it. Why? Because the world is going down and all the lust and all the the wrong motives and all the wrong paths is all going down. It's passing away. What does that mean? It's dying. This world is dying. It it has a shelf life on it. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. Jesus is going to catch up his church and this world and the heavens will pass away. I know you believe that. I know you know the word, I know you're well taught, but understand something, sometimes we forget that we shouldn't hitch ourselves so tightly to this world. Why, because it's dying, it's passing away. Now listen, what happens when the church doesn't disentangle itself from the world, but instead marries the world? And this is, this is the question we need to consider. This is what happens when Christians and churches and believers won't disentangle themselves from the world, but instead make peace with it and marry the world. This is what happens. The first thing is that the church will abandon its first love. That's why the text here says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Even anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." See, these things are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. If you marry into the world as a believer or if the church marries into the world, the first thing the church will do by necessity is abandon its first love. You can't have Jesus on the throne of your heart and be the king of your life and at the same time serve the world. The second thing the church will do is embrace compromise. And I want you to hear that. This is so relevant to us today because we see and we hear about churches and denominations that were once solid theologically, now embracing compromise and walking away from the truth of God's word and becoming culturally relevant but biblically illiterate. And so we see the church will embrace compromise. Why? By necessity. You can't be a friend of the world. You can't be in step with the world if you believe the word of God and live the kingdom principles that Jesus taught. First, you'll abandon your first love, and then you'll embrace compromise. Now, listen to me. I'm going to say something. Churches that think they can reach the lost by ignoring, excusing, or embracing what the Bible calls sin are exactly wrong. We cannot reach the world by compromise. We cannot reach the world by, well, pastor, can't we just tone it down a little bit? Can't we just not talk? No, we have to preach the whole counsel of God's word. We have to say the truth in love. And Churches that think, well, let's just throw this out, let's adjust this, let's ignore that topic, or don't don't talk about that, let's restructure. Listen, to think that we can abandon our first love and embrace compromise and then ignore what the Bible says is the way for us to live and think that we are going to reach the lost, that's exactly the wrong approach. The truth is, it's not in our conformity to the world, but in our distinction from it that proves that God's way is better. It's not in our conformity to the world, but in our distinction from it that makes us spiritually attractive to those who are looking for the truth. Are you hearing me today? You and I need to be spiritually attractive. How do we do that? We disentangle ourselves from the world. We live the gospel and we prove that God's way, we prove that there is another way. There are people who are just looking for another way. Pastor, you know, I hear what you're saying. This is the way I've always lived. This is the way my parents did or my grandparents. You mean to tell me there's another way? There's God's way and it differs from the world and it's our distinction from the world, not our conformity to it that makes us spiritually attractive. Romans 12 to a scripture we all know and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind amen that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of god So dare to stand out, dare to be different, dare to disentangle yourself from the world. Don't conform to it, why? Because it's our distinction from the world. It's our distinction from the system of this world that makes us spiritually attractive to the lost. So if we wanna be Christians who are part of the Great Commission, and we wanna be Christians who are effective in our Christianity, we cannot marry the world. However, this applies to us today, we need to work it out at the feet of Jesus because if we are connected to the world in that way, we need to immediately disentangle ourselves. Number two, the second key that unlocks our effectiveness as Christians is this not trying to create a unity that can never exist. That might sound like an interesting point, but there are those who try and they labor, what? To create a unity between the church and the world that can never exist. I hear people all the time, and I'm sure you heard them too, say things like, well, we're all in this together. Have you heard that? And you hear people say, well, we're all God's children. Every single one of us, doesn't even matter, you know, what we believe, we're all God's children or all roads lead to God. Now listen, all of that sounds nice and it sounds inclusive, but is it true? In fact, the scripture that we're looking at today and the entire New Testament actually teach the exact opposite. The scripture teaches that there are two kingdoms, and there's the kingdom of God, and there are the kingdoms of this world. And those two kingdoms are uh, diametrically opposed to each other. You can either be in one kingdom or another. You know, my wife is Canadian, as most of you know, and uh, you can have this thing where you can have American citizenship and Canadian citizenship. You can have dual citizenship. That may work in the nations, but it does not work in the kingdoms. You can't be a dual citizen. Well, I'm a citizen of this world and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm part of this kingdom and I'm part of that kingdom. No, it's mutually exclusive. You can only have one. You can only choose one. There are two kingdoms. They are in conflict with each other. The kingdoms of this world are in conflict with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of darkness is in conflict with the kingdom of God. See, this, this might not be popular preaching. Well, oh, pastor, we just wanna hear kumbaya and all roads lead to God and let's, you know, just all join hands. We're all in this together. But the truth is that that is a lie. The two kingdoms are at war with each other and there is no unity between them. The God of heaven and earth will not sit down with Satan and strike up a peace accord. The God of heaven and earth and and Jesus Christ, the risen one, will not sit down with the kingdom of darkness and call a truce. Come on, I know there's only a few people here today, but the the truth is worth shouting about every once in a while. There is no unity between those two kingdoms. Now, you say, well, pastor, why are you laboring so hard to make this point? And I'll tell you why, because verse 14 through 16 of our text, Jesus cites five things that are opposed to each other to make this very point. The first thing he says here is he gives five terms of unity, uh, that you know, these terms suggest unity. We're gonna cover those in a minute. And then he gives five places where unity can never exist. Listen again to the text. "'Do not be bound together with unbelievers.'" Now he launches right into these five illustrations. "'For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? "'Or what fellowship has light with darkness? "'Or what harmony has Christ with Baal? "'Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? "'Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols?' Did you hear all that? Jesus wasn't just filling up pages there, rattling some stuff off. You know, he wasn't waxing eloquent. He's making a very pointed point. You say, why is it a pointed point? Because he gives five illustrations to make this point. He starts off with those five terms that suggest unity. He says, partnership, fellowship, harmony, in common, which we can say is commonality, and agreement. Those five words suggest unity. He uses those to show that you can't have unity in these five places between righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and the devil, a believer and an unbeliever, the church and idols. Are you getting this? Such a powerful point he's making here. He's saying you, you can't have unity between these things. It's an impossibility to have righteousness and lawlessness. How can you have unity there? Either you're righteous and you're in Christ and you're covered with the blood of Jesus in, your, in the names in the Lamb's Book of Life, or you're in sin and you're operating in lawlessness and you need to be saved. There's no unity there. You can't have unity, partnership, fellowship, harmony, agreement between light and darkness. You say, well, what about twilight? That's compromise. What about the twilight? That's, you know, lukewarm living. And listen to me, lukewarm living is not uh, how we're going to attain effective Christianity. We have to either be in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. We can't ride the middle of the line. We can't ride the fence. How about Christ and the devil? What an illustration that is there. He says, you know, you can't have harmony between Christ and Belial. So he's saying, you know, Jesus and the devil, there's no unity between them. And we get that. There's no unity between believer and unbeliever. How about this one? He says, between the church and idols. Either we're in the church of Jesus Christ in right relationship with Jesus, or we're serving idols. The sad thing is sometimes we come to Jesus and then we go back to our idols. Why? Because they're seductive and they draw us away from Christ. But he is making such a pointed point here. Five times, there can be no unity in these situations. Jesus gives the illustrations to drive home the point that it is impossible to unify the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We're not in this altogether. There are the, those of us who are a part of the body of Christ, and we need to do our part to snatch people out of the world who are lost, because at the end of the age, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, those two groups don't have any unity either. Either heaven is our eternal destiny or we're lost in our sins and we need salvation. So this whole idea, we're in this together, you know we're all God's children, all roads lead to God. There are lies from the enemy to, to deceive people to thinking that their spiritual destiny is, a, is gonna be a good one when really they need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So there can be no unity between these kingdoms. In fact, John 17, 14 through 18 says this. I have given them, Jesus speaking, your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world. He's speaking of us, the church, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. Listen to verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is saying, look, my children, my church, my body is not of the world. The world hated me, the world's gonna hate you. There's no unity between us and the world. In fact, the more we live this and the more we declare this and the more we speak the truth of God's word, the more out of step we are gonna be with the world and the more pushback we're gonna get. Well, pastor, I don't, I don't like to make waves and I don't want pushback, so I'm just gonna tone it down. Don't compromise. What fellowship can an unbeliever have with a believer? What fellowship can darkness have with light? So all of this goes back to the point that we're making here uh, that we shouldn't try to make a unity that never exists. I see so many Christians trying to make a unity with the world and we need to stop doing that. Why? Because there again, it's our difference that makes us spiritually attractive. If we're just like the world, if the church becomes just like the world, if we throw out all the offensive doctrines that the world doesn't like and we make it all plain vanilla, then we'll really reach the lost. No, then we'll just be all lost together. (laughs) So we can't have unity with the world and be an effective member of the kingdom of God. Yet, we cannot completely withdraw ourselves from the world because God still expects us to reach it with the gospel. Did you hear that? Oh, yeah, pastor, I get it. You know, come out from among, be separate. You know, we're supposed to be different. You know, we need our minds renewed. And yeah, we're not of the world. We're in the world. and, and, And all of a sudden we think, yeah, well, what I need to do is just get away from all of it, circle the wagons and just, you know, wait for Jesus to come get me. No, we still are expected by our heavenly father to be in the world, but not of it. Why? Because we have to reach the world with the gospel. Now, the $5 million question becomes, how do we reach the lost without compromising our faith? How do we reach the lost without compromising our morality or our theology or our devotion to Jesus? And here's the answer to that question. We do it the same way that Jesus did it. Jesus walked the earth and he touched everyone within his reach. And when he died and rose again, he broke the power of sin, for everyone, if we would call upon the name of the Lord, we'd be saved. What did Jesus do? He reached people. And how did he do it? He did it in such a way where he preserved his integrity. So we, yes, we have to reach the world. We have to be in the world, but not of it. How do we reach them without compromising? This is how Jesus did it. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he didn't practice sin. Hear that. Jesus was a friend. Well, I just don't want to be near anybody unless, you know, they're, they're a Christian and they believe what I, but no. Listen, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, and the religious people looked, and they were mad. Look who he's eating with. Look who he lets touch him. Look whose house he goes to. Huh. So Jesus, how did he reach people? He, he reached them through friendship evangelism. He was a friend of sinners, but at the same time, he didn't practice sin. He ate with them, he talked with them, he reasoned with them, he loved them, but he didn't do what they did. Jesus ate with tax collectors, but he never stole money. Jesus ate with prostitutes and he ministered to them, but he never had sexual immorality. Jesus did all of these things, but he maintained his purity. Now you say, pastor, uh, that's a great point, but you know what, I've noticed something. Uh, Jesus could do some things that I can't do. And it's true, we're not Jesus. And so we do have to be careful about who we're around. You're not like, well, you know, I went to the bar and I was gonna witness, but you know, I just started doing what you do at a bar. Listen, we have to use wisdom. but The point I'm trying to make here is that we have to be able to go out and reach people with love. We have to be able to go out and reach people, not with compromise, but with maintaining our integrity because that's what Jesus did. You and I should be working to be spiritually mature enough that when we're out there in the world among sinners, it's not even the slightest temptation to us. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but didn't practice sin. Number two, Jesus was 100% compassionate, but he was never permissive. John eight, 10 through 11. When Jesus had raised himself, there was a woman who was caught in adultery. They drug her out to stone her. Jesus got down and he wrote something in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. He was probably listing off the sins of the people who had rocks in their hands. But when he, it says, when he raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So what an amazing situation here. Jesus, being 100% compassionate, sees a woman caught in adultery. They drag her out all by herself. Uh, Apparently, you know, no man was involved. She committed adultery by herself. You figure that one out. But they were ready to kill her. And Jesus steps in. Why? Because he's compassionate. Because he knows that we're weak and that we're sinners. And he knows what happens in people's lives. And we find ourselves in positions. And so he steps in for her. And he, he advocates for her. And then all of her accusers, one by one, drop their rocks and go away. And so you might look at that and go, wow, the compassion of Jesus. I love it. But what I want you to see is he was compassionate, but not permissive. Notice what he says. I don't condemn you. Go have a nice day and live your life. It's all going to be good. That's not what it says. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Did you hear that? He was compassionate, but not permissive. And that's what we need to be in the church. Compassionate towards the broken, compassionate towards the lost, compassionate toward the addicted, compassionate toward the immoral. But yet we can't just tell them that their addiction and their immorality and their sin is okay and wink at it. Why? Because it will kill them spiritually for eternity. Wow. So We learn to be 100% compassionate, to look at people and feel the brokenness and see what God sees. But then at the same time, we are not permissive. We teach them the commandments of Jesus Christ. We teach them how to come out of sin and be righteous by the blood of the lamb. The third thing Jesus did to reach the lost without compromise is this. Jesus wasn't self-righteous or judgmental, but he always told the truth in love. Notice that many times religious people, when they uh, speak against sin or they speak against certain practices, they come across very judgmental, very self-righteous. And I don't need to tell you that if we're trying to reach the lost and we're offending them and we're demeaning them and we're putting ourselves above them, that we are not doing what Jesus called us to do. You're not gonna reach people through humiliating them, through making them feel filthy. You know, we're all sinners saved by grace. and We need to never forget that. The only reason you and I have righteousness in us is because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us and purified us. We're there but for the grace of God go you and I when we look at people who are trapped in sin. So we need to come across with love, not to be self-righteous. Oh, it's so ugly when Christians are self-righteous. You know why? Because it's so unfitting. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, but the righteousness we do have is not our own. It's from Christ. So for us to judge others when we've received the free gift is so unbecoming. It's so self-righteous. We have to tell the truth to people in love. And the, the operating word there that I want you to catch is the truth. You know what? The truth these days can be pretty controversial. The truth of God's word can be, you know, pretty explosive. And you and I need to learn to say it in love with wisdom in a way that people can hear the truth, not compromising, not withholding the truth. What good is it for us to be compassionate and not self-righteous and not judgmental, but not tell the truth? Because until the truth touches people, they'll never get free from sin. Until we were confronted with the truth, we never would have repented and come to Jesus. So we've got to tell the truth in love. Jesus reached the lost. Jesus touched people. He didn't compromise in any way. He remained moral. He remained devout to his father. And he didn't practice sin in any shape, way, or form. But he was a friend of sinners. He was 100% compassionate, and he wasn't judgmental. And we need to be like that. Holy Spirit, teach us and train us. Put a guard over our lips. Change our hearts until we can minister to people like that. Because if we try to create a unity that is not there and think we will win them by compromise, we are deceived. But if we will stay true to the word, we will be effective Christians, and we'll have a relationship with Jesus that will be spiritually attractive to the lost. I want to close with this. Our relationship with God has to be solid in three areas. Our text uh, says some powerful things here in verse 17 and 18. I want to read it to you again. Therefore, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. What a powerful call to us as believers. Come out from the world. Don't marry it. Be disentangled from it. And do not touch the unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Look at that. Our welcome uh, by the Father, our welcome by Jesus comes when we disentangle ourselves from this world, when we step out of one kingdom into the kingdom of God. And I will be a father to you beautiful. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Our relationship with God has to be solid in three areas, and I'll tell you why. Because before you and I can make incursions into enemy territory and liberate captives, you and I have to be solid ourselves. And that's the point of the whole drill here, church, that what? We make incursions into enemy territory that you and I, by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit and the direction of the Holy Spirit, go into the world and snatch sinners out of the fire and lead them to the cross so they can be part of the kingdom of God. That's the point of us being here today. We sung today that God's breath is in our lungs. Why do we have breath in our lungs? To fulfill the great commission, to go out there and to preach the good news so that people can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have to have our life solid. You know, there's that old uh, story that says, you know, you have to put on, if you're in a plane and it's going down, what, you have to put on your own oxygen mask first before you can help those around you. Because if you pass out, you can't help those people who are depending on you. If the church doesn't get solid, if believers don't get solid in their relationship with Christ, if we don't reach maturity, we can't help those who are depending on us, we're gonna pass out. So we've gotta be solid in these three areas and the text says it. First, we must be consecrated to God. It says, come out from among them And be separate. What does that mean? It means get disentangled. But what it's talking about is consecration. Consecration is when something is set apart for holy usage. You and I have to look at our lives as laid down because we have been given the free gift of salvation. Now, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, amen. So now what do I do? I live my life in consecration. I'm set apart for holy usage to fulfill the Great Commission to be a light in the darkness. So you and I have to be consecrated. Number two, we must be blameless before him. It says, and touch not the unclean thing. Now listen, all of us sin and none of us are even close to perfect. And the closer to get we get to Jesus, the more we see the imperfections of our nature and our flesh. So we crucify that thing daily, but you and I are always gonna struggle with sin until we're delivered from this body of sin and we fall into the arms of Jesus for eternity. But it says, you know, touch not the unclean thing. So we've gotta be blameless before him. How do we do that? We come out of the world and we base all our righteousness, all our strength, all of what holds us together on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. The only way for us to be blameless is to be 100% committed to him, to be embracing the sanctification process as the Holy Spirit transforms us from the old nature into the image of Jesus Christ. So we're consecrated and we're blameless. And the last thing we need to do in getting our character solid before the Lord so we can reach out and pull others and snatch them from the fire is to be in right standing with God. Look what it says here. He says and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So our right standing with God comes when what? We've allowed him to consecrate us, we've allowed him to be our righteousness, and we are not partakers of sin, but we resist sin, and God says, you know what? I accept you, I'll cover you, you're mine, and now I can use you. Understand God wants to use every one of us He wants us to be effective. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God wants you and I to be laborers, to be effective Christians, but there's a process here on how we should do it. And first, we cannot get married to the world. And if we are, we need to disentangle ourselves from it and be 100% committed to Christ. Secondly, we cannot try and rest on or create or bank on a unity uh, with the world because those two kingdoms are in conflict it's our difference it's our distinction that makes us spiritually attractive let's bow our heads Father, today I pray that this word would impact the hearts of everyone who's hungry to be used by you. Father, I pray that every believer that hears this message today, that we would, we would strip our hearts before you and allow, us, uh, allow you just to put your finger on things that need to change and things that need to be adjusted, where we need to repent of sin, where we need to disentangle ourselves from the world. Father, open our eyes and help us to see where we've married into the world system, And Father, help us to just get free from it. Holy Spirit, do a work in your people. Do a work in your body. I believe there's a harvest, a now harvest for the church to be uh, partakers of that we would reap in. Father, help us to be effective Christians, to be able to come before you and be introspective enough to admit where we need to change and to admit that we could be a lot more effective than we are, to take our role, our job in the body of Christ seriously and to do it with all our strength and all our might as unto you as worship. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Lord bless you today. I hope the word is encouraging you. I hope the word is challenging you. I know that in this time, it's easy to get kind of like uh, bogged down and maybe a little depressed or a little bit disillusioned. But listen to me, keep yourself spiritually sharp and get ready because God is doing some great things and you and I need to be ready to jump in and to be his hands and his feet to a hurting world. I believe people are open to truth now and they're open to change now. And a lot of people have made changes already. Let's ride that wave and see what the Holy Spirit does. Exciting times. Exciting times. I encourage you to go to FGC web, listen to these messages, stay in the word. You know, I noticed that some of the viewership drops off in here and that's par for the course, but uh, share these messages, get them out there. Uh, People need to be encouraged. People need to be focused. Like Kelly was saying, there's so much stuff on the internet that confuses people. You know what? The word of God never brings confusion. It brings comfort. And so continue to give. Thank you for all of you or continue to give. You can click the giving tab on uh, fgcweb.org there and you can give or you can mail it in whatever the church is doing well and we are looking forward to having you back soon again if you have any needs call us we're here to serve you and we love you and we're looking forward to see you soon god bless you